You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another week of the greatest show on earth, the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and today we have a really good BS session. Uh, We're going to be talking with Ty Kellogg from Northeast Ohio, and we're going to talk about his family farm. We're going to talk about how deer move through it. We're going to talk about Northeast uh, Ohio as a whole. We're going to talk about trapping. We're going to talk about uh, that that thing that I don't necessarily think we focus on enough, and that is that hunt life balance, right? Just like uh, many of you, Ty doesn't get out as much as he would like because he's got several kids, he's got a full-time job, and he's got a wife, right? And so I always tell this, and, and you'll hear this in the, in the episode, if you're going to get married, hunting time will go down. If you plan on having kids, hunting time will go down. And so unless you are upfront with your wife or your girlfriend at the time or however that works, you got to let them know right now. There can't be any mistakes. We also share stories uh, here. I'll, I'll just say it this way and don't take this out of context. We also share a couple crazy beaver stories. Take that how you want it. You're going to have to listen for those, but it's a really good episode. I know you guys are going to enjoy it. Uh, so right now is usually when we go ahead and do the commercials, but what I'm going to do today is we're just going to run one commercial and really what I'm doing is I'm introducing a new partner to the nine finger uh, chronicles. And so as of this episode, we have partnered with a company called wood men's pal. And what that is, is it's a machete right? It's a company that has been around since 1941. Uh, it is made in America, two things that are kind of badass. And, and really the owner came up to me and he, or the reached out to me. He's like, Hey man, I'm, I'm struggling getting my brand out to people who could potentially use this because social media, you know, uh, you know, doesn't do very well with weapons or, or knives or holsters or anything guns and and he owns some other products that you you guys will hear about later but 
it's a it's a badass machete and i can definitely see this being in my truck at all times like hey in case i need something i mean it's heavy duty i'm, I'm holding it in my hand right now it's heavy duty enough to where you could chop down uh, a decent sized tree with it uh, you could clear shooting lanes you could hack down some bushes uh, you could clear vines out of the way you could make uh, scrapes with it right you can make rubs with it you can do a whole bunch of really cool things with this this wood wood men's pal and so the first thing that you need to do and it, like i say with all of these all these partners is just go check out the website see everything that they offer w-o-o-d-m-a-n-s-p-a-l.com woodmanspal.com check this thing out dude I can definitely see the functionality. I'm going to be putting it in my pack when I go do my uh, my annual tree stand hanging or moving or or things like that for my traditional rut locations, you know. And so, hell, this might even be something that I attach to my hip when I'm I'm being mobile and not like on a big mobile hike, but maybe on a smaller, more um, you know short short distance from the truck mobile uh setup so uh woods man uh, woodmanspal.com uh, you're going to hear a lot more from this company here in the near future uh comes with a leather sheath 1941 uh american made sharpening stone like it's just it's badass so go check it out all right that is the only commercial i'm running today and go check out go check those guys out uh what else do we have to do? We got to do some housekeeping. I had a note here, but I forgot it. Anyway, um, go to Instagram. Make sure you're following the Nine Finger Chronicles. Comment if you like something. Go to iTunes or wherever you download your, uh, download your podcast. Make sure you're subscribed. And then also make sure that you leave a five-star review there as well. Uh, and that's it. That's it. That's all I want to talk about today. Let's get into today's episode with Ty Kellogg. Three, two, one. All right, on the phone with me all the way from Ohio, Mr. Ty Kellogg. Ty, what's up, man? How you doing today, Dan? I'm doing good. I don't know what uh, what it's like where you live, but for the past two days, it has been so windy. Like yesterday, I had we had a baseball game, and uh, the dust was coming off the field and smoking the kids right in the face the parents right in the face the entire game and so people were starting to get fed up you know with it the kids couldn't focus and and so i always i I was i was joking i said it's south dakota windy here right now because every time i go out to south dakota there's a couple days out there where it's just gnarly windy and uh and so iowa is uh experiencing some of that that real western wind that is uh, pretty well. We've had some wind gust in Northeast Ohio for the last few weeks, but not the constant wind that you guys probably see. And I think I saw on the news here, was that in Illinois, that there was a dust storm on the highway? Yes, I saw that on the news right. briefly somewhere, yeah, where there, people were recording it. It was, um, we've seen a lot of increased winds. I'm in insurance, and at the end of March, we had two weeks of significant winds here in Northeast Ohio. And I can't tell you the number of claims that we filed just yeah. for structures um, and the dollar amounts that were getting paid out and are still getting paid out as a result of it. It, it was pretty nasty. Yeah. Uh, 
I was pretty disappointed. <laughs> and so we had to get a new roof due to hail. We had major hail damage, um, which is crazy. So uh, a big hailstorm comes through the, our town. Our neighbor's uh, roof, the, the insurance adjuster goes, hey, man, your roof looks fine. Meanwhile, my insurance adjuster says mine is destroyed, right? And so he went up there with some chalk, and he was circling all the you know, and I guess mm-hmm. the calculation is if there's X number of damage in a certain square footage, that's a total loss. Long story short, we get a, a brand new roof, but I was hoping that it w- the, the damage would have also destroyed my siding because we need new siding on the house. And I just got it quoted out and that shit's expensive. <laughs> I'm not hearing this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Next time there's even a, a slight wind, I'm going to be out there with a claw hammer ripping siding off, then go to jail la, for, la, la, for la, insurance la, la, la. fraud. <laughs> I heard nothing. Heard nothing. There you go. Do people, do people try to do that shit? They do, but nowhere near as much as perhaps is advertised or talked about, um, especially since I started seven years ago under my dad's tutelage, every insurance carrier has really started to tighten down on what they'll pay and what they won't pay. And to the point of they will hire third party uh, appraisers to evaluate a roof or the siding to make sure that yes, this is legit. Because you also got a factor, at least for your roof's perspective, is there matching shingles or matching metal, depending on what it is. Um, Yeah how much damage is truly there or was it just wear and tear? Yeah. The reality is the insurance company doesn't want to pay out more money than they have to, especially now with costs doubling and tripling in some areas. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you're obligated to whatever the policy says. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, you happen to get a good adjuster for your house and whoever your friend's company is, um, might've been green on the job or maybe the company said, Hey, not a dollar more than what you're seeing. Yeah, that's nuts. Well, I tell you what, now that I remember, I let him in my house because he was he was all the way from South Carolina and he came oh, wow. he came to my house. So it might have been one of those third party deals who these mm-hmm. people, you know, I reached out to my uh, my provider or my my home insurance people they they said okay well we're going to reach out to someone they're going to come look at your house so it must have been a third party like storm chasing crew that was out there and said hey you know go look at this house i remember letting him in my house for a moment and he saw all my deer mounts and he's like oh man these are awesome you know we don't have bucks like that in south carolina and so (laughs) and and so maybe that was the reason hunting saved me again and I, i got a brand new roof it is not out of the realm of possibility. It's like anything else in your business. You find some right. common ground with someone, you're a little more akin to bending for right. them. Right. There you go. Well, big bucks in Iowa got me a new roof in, in some way, shape, or form, maybe. All right. I don't really know where to where to kick off. So we, we've already talked about the fact that you live in Ohio, that you, you're, uh, you work in insurance. Uh, what part of Ohio do you live in? I'm in Northeast Ohio, so we're almost exactly halfway between the city of Cleveland, which is to the west of us, and the Pennsylvania line, which is to the east of us. And we are probably 10 to 12 miles as the crow flies directly inland from Lake Erie. Okay. All right. So Northeast Ohio, um, 
talk to me a little bit about the vibe, the hunting vibe there as far as whitetails are concerned. Because I've heard some good things about Northeast Ohio, but then I also have heard that with its location between Pittsburgh and Cleveland, and then what's the, is, how far is Cincinnati? That's that's much further away. Cincinnati is the southwest corner of the okay. state. All right. from, from us, it's five hours away, roughly. Okay, what's on the southeast corner? of southeast corner you're getting into uh, marietta Marietta. you're getting closer to west virginia line that weird corner of marietta meets west virginia meets a little corner of of pa as well okay all right and so um i've also heard that that area of ohio because it is over the counter gets flooded uh, a lot of times for not only out-of-state hunters but just hunters traveling from the cities as well to go take advantage of their public Yes, that's true on all fronts. Ohio in general is has been for a while now a pretty strong whitetail state. And I think every year when you look at the Pope and uh, Young records and Boone and Crockett, you see Ohio up there in the top 10, top five almost every year in yeah. terms of total harvest numbers. Uh, the county next door to us near the PA line and the one to the south, they're some of the strongest harvest numbers in the entire state. Okay. So people love to hunt. Uh, there's a lot of pressure. There is a good amount of ag land mixed in with some real good natural habitat, a lot of swamp ground and hardwood. So it offers a lot of good territory for deer of all shapes and sizes to get lost and get mature. So you can see your big bucks, or if you're just like me and you're just trying to get out there and get the first dumb deer that crosses your path, there's plenty of those opportunities too. And the price tag for permits it's still pretty affordable compared to where you are in Iowa or elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, for me, dude, I love it. I paid $28 and 50 cents for my deer tag every year, my, my archery deer tag. And, and so, yeah. And so, I mean, even the, the, the cheapest whitetail, man, what is it? Like $163 for a non-resident to go to one of the other States that I was looking at. That's that's fairly cheap as well, and so yeah. I, I I look at twenty eight I look at twenty eight fifty. There's people that complain about that price. I am like, dude, I I would pay double or quadruple that for a, te- a as a resident here in this state. Yeah. So and that says a lot. Yeah. If you're willing to say that, I would like to see. I wouldn't say I want the permits to go higher, but the reality right. is that there's always talk of cutting funding for conservation programs and licensing and fees and well long term i don't think that's a smart idea so at some point we'll probably have to raise dues again yeah Yeah. that's just part of business yeah absolutely all right so northeast ohio where you're at are you a private guy are you a public guy do you hunt mix what's your story i've been very fortunate uh i'm spoiled i'm a private guy okay Uh, born raised on the family farm yeah, we were fortunate, my wife and I and our three kids, to build on the farm just a few years ago. And all the family land connected is probably somewhere between 112, 120 acres. All right. Okay. And it's a good mixed terrain, so there's plenty of whitetails. Um, and it's also geographically limited, so there's not a lot of pressure from neighboring lots. So a lot of them just kind of congregate to our area. And I walk out the basement door and I go pick my spots. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and so the neighborhoods, when you say geographically 
limiting. I I hear that and I say, okay, there's a river or there's a state park or there's something big that prevents people from entering in one side of that property. You're two, you're two for two already, Dan. So we've Ooh. got a big creek or a small river okay. right behind the place. All right. And then we've also got a very steep, hilly uh, hillside, which I would probably consider the uppermost region of the Appalachian Mountains if you really wanted to get tick for tack about it. Okay. So, you one, you got to cross that small creek, big creek river, and then you got to get up that real nasty terrain up to the hillside. And then to one corner of the property is a park district. They have very limited permitted tags for hunting, uh, for archery, and a couple for gun. But it's very limited. Very few folks get access to it. Okay. So, so that really limits that the helps. pressure that those deer get tremendously. Okay, good. All right. So um, it sounds to me like you got a uh, you got the terrain. It's not necessarily flat. You got some ag. You got some some timber. Uh, how are the deer in that? in that area using that river that you mentioned and using that steep terrain and how then do you use it to, to put yourself in the best position? I've told everyone that I've ever hunted with or talked about hunting with my, my place, our farm is the hardest place for me to hunt because of the mixed terrain. Mm -hmm. So to visualize, you put up your hand and you form that shape of an L to the far side of the L is a County road. Immediately next to that is a swamp with a pond in it. Next to that is a L-shaped hay pasture. There's never been a lot of row crop down that way. Next to that then is the Creek River with, you know, lots of your, your river edge hardwoods, some sycamores, a little bit of locusts some willows. And then you hit the steep terrain, which is all hardwood and hemlock. Okay. It offers a lot of finger ridges and real tiny passageways and grapevine choked uh, passageways. So these deer have a number of options. I've come yeah. to the conclusion there's multiple families on this property uh, in terms of deer groups. So they all use it at different times at different days. And that's what makes it difficult is I have to figure out best wind pattern. Well, when's that wind pattern hitting the hillside and those thermals? How is that coinciding? And then how do I get in without making a big ruckus? Yeah. Because a hundred and for us, 120 acres in Northeast Ohio, that's a big plot of private. Mm -hmm. So just because you have it doesn't mean you're going to pick the right spot. So you really kind of have to study it a lot. Yeah, man, I've, I've hunted some areas where, how do I put this? When I'm looking for a big mature buck or a, a hit lister, or I'm, I'm paying attention to certain doe groups. Right, and I, I find out how these doe groups move through tree stand tree stand observation, and I find out how they move through trail camera intel. Okay, mm -hmm. so here comes a doe group through, and sometimes it is the same time every single day, or sometimes it's coming back to bedding the same time every single day. It may fluctuate a little bit, but what I'm getting at here is, I know that if there's if I'm hunting one specific doe group or doe bedding area where now let's say at 4:30 on a afternoon hunt they come through a certain area mm -hmm. that means I got to be in my stand before 4:30 uh and get set up before they come through same thing in the morning uh sometimes a doe group comes through at 9 and I have to 
you know, get back in between the food source and the bedding before, you know, that time. Usually I go in early. But what I'm getting at here is that the there are places where I, it's almost impossible to get into because doe groups come through those areas different times, different days, yes. or they're crisscrossing their paths, or they may meet up right. at a social, let's say, staging area, and then distribute from there. So I, I get what you're, I get what you're saying. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For all of my early life, the deer hunting was pretty much, here's your crossbow, sit at the base of a tree in the hayfield, and just wait for the deer to emerge. Yeah. But over the years, the deer have gone nocturnal when they get into that field. Yeah. So I won't say the spot's rendered useless, but let's yeah. face it, we can't spotlight. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So you have to find trails and food patterns. And so fortunately, when I crossed that creek, that small river most of the time I got a good thumb on what food is available when I'm hunting. And so I tend to find what's the biggest travel corridor for that section of the area and what food is available. Mm -hmm. And I start with that and I've been fortunate that's worked. So if it ain't broke, I'm not going to fix it. Right. Is there a time of year that, so for me, I, I really, now on this new farm I got, I, I should back up a little bit on this new farm. I got man, early October, mid-October looks like a good good time to get out there. But most of the time, I'm waiting until that late October, early November time frame, mm-hmm. not even worrying about it. Are you laying off uh, of your farm until the good times, or are you? is it just you know people coming in to hunt it throughout the entire season? We're very fortunate. We cut back years ago on the number of people that hunted the farm to the point where my family was only comfortable if I was there with whoever else came. Okay. So that restriction was good because that eliminated competition pressure. Yep. Uh, the bad news for anyone else that wants to hunt the farm is, well, I'm not really available most of the year, except I basically cut off deer gun season for Ohio as yep. my time. Um, in terms of most deer activity, I see a lot in the early fall because the neighboring property has replanted their hay field all to clover just recently. Okay. So they were munching on that fresh, late grown clover right before, you know, winter and rut came on. And then they would go up to the hillside and hit the soft mass. Okay. And so, but, you know, hearing you talk about this property sounds like, it, it sounds like it's just, it's almost perfect. I mean, you got the thickness in there they have cover the marsh provides water you have hay and you have clover in the area which provides food it sounds like you have the hardwoods uh, that provides food and so it seems to me like the deer are going to be there all year am i am i accurate with that the deer are there all year it's just finding that particular group yeah making sure your wind is right Mm -hmm. and then just hanging out until they show yeah uh do you have set places where 
like your traditional rut hunting type funnels or destined, you know, field edges, or maybe a pinch point of some sort, or are you, are you mobile in your approach? I became more mobile in the last five years and it was a blessing in disguise. I wasn't really anticipating, just kind of fell into my lap. The first piece of the, the mobile became moving to a compound bow okay. that I got on a cheap from a neighbor. Uh, he was selling it for his dad. It was a Browning compound, had eight arrows with it, case, uh, everything included, 125 bucks. Yeah. Did you start out so, on a crossbow? I'd start out on a crossbow, which okay. I know on a several of your episodes, you got you got a little bit of a beef with the crossbow folks, but maybe a little. I don't know. I, I get I, why you have yeah. the beef, but I will say this: the crossbow for me was the gateway drug. Yeah, it made it accessible uh, without investing a boatload of money, um, and also to it kept teasing me with, "Hey, get out there, use me. Get out there, yeah. use me." And then finally. So I got the compounds like, well, I can't really shoot the compound from the ground. I only know one or two people that have done that with any success ever outside of Native Americans. So when I got the compound, then I started looking for a climber as opposed to the traditional ladder stands that I'm sure you grew up with and yep. that I grew up with when we first started hunting. So I had a friend that said, hey, I'm getting rid of my Summit Viper. Here's 125 bucks for it. And all of a sudden I was 20, 25 feet in the air and I was seeing deer that I'd never seen before because I was off the ground. The scent was being carried away and it was just fantastic. Yeah. So being able to go mobile with that at the time really opened my eyes to more travel corridors, patterns, behaviors, what I can get away with and what I can't. Right. You just had the ability to observe more deer movement throughout your entire farm, not just those ladder stand spots. Right. Okay. All right. And so, man, I I think I saw a statistic somewhere where during the archery season, uh, the state of Ohio, those archery tags, I want to say 70% of those archery tags are filled by crossbows. Some, some, something like that. So, I mean, my, my question is, if, if you started off with a crossbow, was it, I mean, you're, you're, you're literally doing something harder than, I mean, I look at it, I go, you can shoot a crossbow from the ground, you can shoot a crossbow from a tree, uh, helicopter, right. whatever. Um, yeah, it might, a compound might be a little more difficult if in a, in a turkey hunting position, right? Uh, like a, right. A, you know, if you're, you can't, you can't really do that. Blind right? or something yeah. like that. Yeah, so uh, I can I can see, but but what was it that made you go? Okay, I wanna I wanna try this compound bow thing and put the crossbow to the side. I think it was kind of a mix of artistry and magic. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's face it: if you have a compound and you want to shoot whatever with it—deer, turkey, squirrels, rabbits—you need to shoot it, and you need to shoot it a lot. I grew up as a baseball player, so form and mechanics were critical to whatever it was I was doing. And to get your best form and your best mechanics, you had to have thousands of repetitions, muscle memory. And I guess in a weird way, going to a compound at that time made sense and appealed to me because not only could I challenge myself a little bit, but I also knew I have to commit to this to make this work. Yeah. 
I can't just paint that summit, hey, see a broadside shot at whatever that shooting angle is and make it work the first time. If I did, it's beginner's luck and it shouldn't count. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So you jumped into, you jumped into, uh, the compound bow world. Uh, how long did it take you to get comfortable shooting that bow? Uh, especially during, during the hunting season. I was fortunate. I don't know if it was the, the weight of the bow or if it was just the fact that I've been around uh, guns and bows most of my life, but getting a form down, being comfortable shooting, it didn't take very long. The hardest thing to practice is at least using the summit Viper is making sure you get the bow over the rest. Yeah. So you don't bang the bottom of it when you're drawing. So that part takes probably the longest to learn, be comfortable with. And the only way to do that is just to do it hundreds and hundreds of times and get out in the woods as much as possible or your backyard. That was probably the bigger learning curve itself as opposed to just shooting. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, did it take you a season, couple seasons, uh, to to get to feel confident in that in that change? I would say it took two seasons to okay. feel really confident. But I'll be the first to admit I was not out there every single week at that point. Maybe every couple of weeks I'd be out there. Yeah. Um, how many days? Or how how much time throughout a given? season are you dedicating towards time in the woods every person on your podcast will probably answer that question with never enough yeah yep um i would say realistically at this point for deer i might be getting out to scout and or to hunt probably two weeks combined total yeah so that's not only scouting throughout the whole year that also includes hunting as well yeah okay two weeks total and so however you want to look at that whether that's 14 days or 10 days depending if you're a a week or a a, you know a work day type guy which sounds about right like what would you if you were to guess what would you guess you think people are hunting more than you or less than you on average if you stay off the of social, I would say folks are probably hunting more than me. Yeah. Yeah. To be very realistic because I know I'm lucky to have the access to private. So mm-hmm. if it's, hey, I got the kids down early, I can get out the door and just pump it up the hill and yep. take a good look around and take a couple hours. Yep. I don't have travel time. I don't have to deal with any of that. I don't have to worry about people stealing cameras if I wanted to hang cameras. Right. Um, I could glass from a certain ridge for an entire evening if I wanted to. So, but I know the last few years, my time has been very limited between basically being self-employed in addition to three kids um, and just working that balance. And that balance, I'll admit, has not been a good balance the last couple of years. So you're saying it's leaning heavy towards family and work and less towards hunting, which everybody, I mean, I do this for a living and it still is it. And I make it lean that way. You know, you you talk to a lot of people when it comes to this uh, hunt life balance where they put hunting before most things. And it just like, they either end up regretting it uh, when they get older or 
their their like their life falls apart in some kind of aspect, right? Uh, I don't, I don't like. I've never seen it work where guys are like, okay, I'm putting I'm putting hunting first and family second. It just like it never works that way. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's funny you say that because I recall a marriage class that I was in with my wife before we got married and there was a bunch of couples there. And I remember this one individual stood out and he said, Hey, I go on four or five big hunting trips a year. And they're five days to 10 days at a time. Mm-hmm. How, how is that going to change or how that's supposed to change? And I'm thinking in my brain at that time, well, Hey guy, one, does she hunt with you? And then two, if you decide to have a family, you're going to be around. And then, like you said, are you going to have that aha moment realizing Mm, I either need to dial this back and be more realistic or this is probably going to end in divorce and be more expensive. Yeah, that that work-life balance is always a struggle. I'm sure if you ask my wife, I hunt too much. And obviously, if you ask me, I wish I could hunt more. I just, I, I, here's where I, what I struggle with. I struggle with, do I leave my town or leave my county and go to another county that has, I mean, I could, I could hunt public. Don't get me wrong. I could find a way to hunt public close to my house and get out and do it more. But I have really good property one hour away and three hours away. And so here, here in the state. So me, I usually just don't hunt until the really good times leave for leave, get the job done knock on wood, leave, get the job done, come home. And and that's what I've been doing the last handful of years. And, uh, and then I, when I go on my trip, so I very rarely do just an evening or just right. a, a morning. Like that's not what I do anymore. Um, I, I probably could, if I wanted to go, ah, I'm just going to go hunt public, but everything in my life has to be scheduled, has to be, mm-hmm. you know, it's got to be on the calendar. And if it does, if it's not on the calendar, then it doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> I, I get that to the team. Yeah. My wife works part-time too, and we don't have babysitting because we do it on our own. Yep. And then you add in the element of my son uh, being recently diagnosed with autism. So you're figuring out all these other things for him. So it's a constant ebb and flow of that calendar. Okay, who is what? Who is where? From what time to what time? When am I in the office? When am I out uh, looking at properties to ensure? Okay, um, all right, what about this weekend? Okay, we've got this going on. We got that going on. We got uh, travel to see in-laws or we got, you know, home and farm projects, things Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. My May calendar, my May calendar, it, there is something on every single day of May. Yeah. And once football is over, spring football, then we'll be able to relax a little bit. Then the summer comes and it's not so, not so rushed per se. Um, 
but as a this is crazy I, and I, I don't remember playing this many games when I was a kid but my son including the tournaments that he plays in or, or no excuse me not including the tournaments that he plays in has 26 baseball games this this season and I'm just like to me that's mind-blowing I'm just I, I don't I don't I think I maybe played 10. He is, uh, he's eight. He just turned eight uh, two weeks ago. 26 seems like a stretch. 26 games and four tournaments. It's, it's gnarly. It's gnarly. And so, uh, that's what we're doing. We're like full blown activities mode. And last night, I mean, we were just the kid. I had to go pick the kids up from school. My wife got off work. We got in the car. We drove, um, you know, 30 minutes North to a different town. We played the mm-hmm. game. The game was an hour and a half. The game got over at uh, eight. We got back to the house at eight 30. I had to give two kids, you know, we gave two kids a bath and then uh, it was like nine 30 before we all got to bed. And we're doing yep. something like that almost every night now, which like, I, I just need a drink by Fridays. Make it two or yeah, three. Exactly, exactly. And then I just fall asleep, and then I'm worthless. Anyway. <laughs> um, I was really fortunate when I met my wife. She quickly grasped how important being involved with the outdoors was to me. Mm-hmm. And, of course, she met me when I was starting to hit my apex of fur trapping. Okay. Which is not something you put on your dating uh, resume. <laughs> I Favorite smell like castor oil. <laughs> right Cat, hey what's that funk you got in the trunk there oh you know wiley red 5000 by Hallbachers. I mean, come on. but she knew that and yeah. she got to see it on several occasions so she understood hey why is ty standing at the window and just kind of looking lost and forlorn like well he's dreaming of the outside world he's not experiencing right now exactly and exactly she we had a kind of an awakening a few years back we were really stretching dollars to try and save up to build this house and buy the land with it and there was at a point where she saw my outdoor activities actually contributing to the bottom line of the household the fur trapping money paid off several debts before we got married paid off for a car paid for wedding bands engagement rings and then when i started hunting more seriously it was a couple deer in the freezer hey you're knocking off a few hundred dollars off the grocery bill. Yeah. And if you're processing it yourself, all of a sudden now you freed up a few more hundred dollars Yep. because around here, most processors are on that hundred dollar mark to break down a deer for you. Yeah. Yeah, man. I tell you this, it, it, that communication is important. So if there's any young guys out there who are unmarried or are thinking about getting married and you're serious about hunting and you decide that you're going to go this family route, the hunting will slow down. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's going to, it's going to suck at first, but it will slow down. It's how you communicate with your bride, you know, or if, hell, it could be vice versa with your husband or, you know, whatever in today's world, who knows, but, uh, you will, it's, it will slow down. But if you communicate and you say, listen, I, this is what I want to do. I want to make it a big part of my life. I want to include you in my life, but you know, this is important to me. And a couple things happen. They say, yes, not a problem, or they have an issue with it. And then at that, at that point you get rid of them and go find a different one. <laughs> yep. So, so if hunting's important, you got to communicate 
sometimes a little shock and awe early on, I think helps. Exactly. Because it's easy to talk about it, yep. but if they don't see it, yep. they yep. don't grasp it. And I, I still remember the, the time my wife understood the hunting trapping influence on me. I'd stayed at her apartment over Christmas break. So I stayed at her apartment several hours away for, I think it was four days. And I went on a trapping excursion with my best friend from childhood. Mm -hmm. He rigged up this private property that just had beaver houses everywhere. This place was untouched. Um, You could have said we were in a whole nother state just with how the terrain was. And so at the end of all of it, I'm getting up at four o'clock in the morning to drive this property, to check all these three thirties, all these snares, all these footholds with my buddy. And at the end of the week, she says, you know, I didn't see that much, but I could tell you had a lot of fun. Do you want to show me what's in the truck? Because we skinned a lot on site and put it in coolers so I could take it to the fur buyer when I went home, but there was a lot on the carcass still. Yeah. And I said, are you sure? She says, yeah. So I open up the the cab of the truck and there's a dozen beaver, a couple foxes, some raccoons, you know, blood on the noses, mm-hmm. dead as doornails, half frozen. And she looks at me and she says, I've never seen a dead fox before. That was her only comment. Yeah. That's all she said about it. Yeah. Hmm. And that was it. Uh, well, she didn't run away. Yeah. But maybe that helped her understand, right? Or maybe she was right. afraid. Like she, she was like, "This guy kills shit. If I run, I'm dead." This guy is. <laughs> so, is it too early to get out of this? Yeah, thing? exactly. Help! I haven't got a line yet. I can break loose, right? That's right. I got, I got a funny beaver story. So I be taken a number of ways. Exactly. <laughs> I got a couple of those too. Anyway. So it was right after Christmas break and I was in college and, and there was a day where, uh, man, there wasn't much going on. So me and another guy grabbed some beer, got in my Chevy Blazer, S10 Chevy Blazer, and oh, started man. doing some dra- gravel traveling. And it led us to my uncle's house. And, you know, we're just, you know, hey, well, we're in the area. Let's stop by, see what he has to say. And he was in his, he, he was tra- uh, trapper at the time. Uh, and I remember going along with him and, and my grandma and things like that. But anyway, we get, we get to my uncle's uh, little garage that he has and he's out there skinning a beaver. And, you know, there's, there's some juices that are involved once you, you know, start the process and all the fats coming mm-hmm. off. And anyway, um, my buddy has this brand new white sweater that he got for Christmas and we're in my garage and my uncle picks this beaver up and flips him on this plywood table. You know, that's just on two sawhorses and juice just flies everywhere right across this kid's white sweater. (laughs) My, he looked, my, this guy looks down at, at his sweater. My uncle looks at his sweater. My uncle just goes, Oops. (laughs) Oops. <laughs> it just like ruined it. I mean, it was done. Just juice all over it. Brown juice all over it. And, oh. and so I got a good laugh. You know, he was mad at the time, but you know, a year later it was all, it was just a joke. And so, uh, that's my, 
that's my funny beaver story. I don't know. I found it funny. Anyway. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. So I'll give you one more funny beaver story, and then we can go on to another topic not about beavers. Got it. Well, I want to continue to talk about trapping, though. But you can okay. tell me a funny beaver story. So part of that same trapping trip. So my friend that I did all the trapping with, he took a few beavers with him and he mm-hmm. said, Hey, I'm not going to skin these right now. Next time you come down here, we'll, we'll do it together. We'll thaw them out, do it that way. Yep. So he puts several of them in this massive commercial chest freezer he had in this rental house of his next to his house. And he said, I'll put them in here. We'll freeze them whole and I'll, we'll deal with them in a few weeks. He said, okay, make sure you tell your wife. So yeah. if she goes there to grab something, she's not scared shitless. He forgot to talk to his wife about this. To your point earlier, if you're into hunting or trapping or anything outdoors, you want to disclose this to whoever your <laughs> potential partner is. He did not disclose such beavers were in the freezer. She opened up the freezer about a week later, uh, almost had a heart attack. <laughs> Threatened to call the minister because she thought the house was haunted because there was dead critters in her freezer. And so I get this call that says, hey, man, when are you, uh, you coming back down the area? I said, uh, probably not for a couple more weeks at this point. He says, we need to skin these free, uh, these beavers ASAP before my wife divorces me. <laughs> John, I told you. You got to talk to her. her. Right. You have to tell her, don't go in that freezer. Don't ask me why. Just yeah. there's stuff in there you don't need. Right. They got divorced a few years later anyway. But yeah, whatever. <laughs> you can't win them all. The cake, that point. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Grievances, uh, dead beaver in the freezer. Yep, yep. I mean, even I would be surprised if I opened my uh, freezer and there was a dead beaver in it and I didn't know about it. I mean, yeah, you know. But then I would get over it real fast and I wouldn't care. I want to, I want to talk about trapping. That's something we don't talk a lot about on this podcast but i know some people do it i know you know you talked about gateway drug right that crossbow was a gateway drug but i've also heard that guys talk about how trapping was a gateway drug to several other other outdoor endeavors how long have you been trapping like do you still trap i mean and and talk to us a little bit about the impact it had on you sure um Trapping has been in my family a long time. My one grandfather was a pretty renowned coon hunter and beaver trapper. Both of his sons, who were my uncles, uh, were big muskrat trappers. Mm-hmm. So there's pictures all over all the family photo albums of them with, you know, that day's catch. And there was a stretch where they were even recruited out of state to trap some private marsh. And it even got local press on it, which was kind yeah. of funny. I really started trapping it was probably 2011 is when I really got into it hard and it was through a friend and I, he was doing a bat removal job at my grandparents' house. And I look in the bed of his truck and I see all these coil springs, long springs, uh, cotton bears. And I said, Hey, I know what those things are. I've seen those things before. And so we started talking and he said, Hey, when the season opens, we'll set, put some sets out behind your place at the time. And 
see what we can catch. And it just, it grabbed a hold of me and I couldn't let go for several years. So I was trapping beaver, muskrat, uh, raccoon, but I'll be very blunt. That time frame, 2011 to about 2016, we saw ridiculously high fur prices. I mean, yeah. for a muskrat, we were seeing 10, $14 rats. Yeah. 20 to $30 raccoons. I mean, even for our real ugly Midwest coyotes, you were seeing anywhere between 25 to 50 bucks, depending on the color and you know how thick the quality of the fur was. So I got into it at a really good time because doing it now, most people, they're catching it for favors for people or for hunting access as an exchange. Yeah. And they're just freezing any fur that they have until a better auction opens up. Yeah. That, that, that is a trapping is a crazy part. Uh, the participation in trapping is crazy. It's like yes, if the, it if the, the fur prices go up, everybody wants to do it. And then the prices go down. And it's like, well, it's now it's not worth my time anymore. And it seems like now, correct me if I'm wrong. There's guys who are passionate about trapping. They love do it, doing it, but it seems that trapping in my eyes is less passion more maybe a little passion sprinkled in with profit how would you take that i wouldn't wouldn't say you're wrong i would say for a lot of people you're actually pretty spot on there's passion included with it but Mm -hmm. the profit has to make sense because if you were to just look at pure dollars and cents in time and compare it to hunting yes whether it's deer or waterfowl or whatever the cost the cost benefit analysis today Trapping is at the bottom end of the scale. That is yeah. a massive time inventory. That's a massive uh, supply material, trap cost, lures, baits. That takes a tremendous amount of time. And to think of it, all most of these folks are doing is harvesting the fur. Yeah. Now, you do need population control. There's no question about it. We don't have enough of it. Yep. Yep. But if I compare it to just hunting deer. Two weeks of my scouting and hunting exposure gets me a couple deer for the freezer and I process them both myself. The cost benefit analysis is totally weighed the other way. It's totally right. beneficial for that two weeks of time. Right. Yeah. It, it's funny. It, it's like it needs to be done, but at the, at the same time, you know, you get the, you can potentially sell a fur at the same time with a deer you can eat its meat. You know, there's not a lot of people out there going, Hey, I'm going to go trap a raccoon and eat it. You know, it, right. it helps in that, on that front. And so, but one thing I, I, I just want to mention here, there's a guy that I follow. His no, his name is Casey Shootman, and he's uh, on a, a show called the management advantage. And I believe he said out of one farm, he trapped over a hundred raccoons one year. And then the next spring, you would see a direct result in all of the turkey that he had on his property because of that. And so he's just like, hey, man, maybe this is part of it. Maybe it's not. But I can't help believe that me trapping all of these raccoons led to me having a better turkey season the next year. So and my talks with wildlife biologists here in the state of Iowa, that in Iowa, and I think throughout the entire country, raccoons are the most overpopulated animal on the landscape, period. 
I think that's all spot on. And another piece of trapping I don't think is really talked about. What trapping made me do is focus on not only the macro details of the wildlife landscape. Mm -hmm. So your, your buddy talks about the correlation between removing of the raccoons with the increased population and hatching of wild turkeys. Mm -hmm. You could say the same for rough grouse yep. uh, and other native birds uh, in that concept, but also to what, if you're trapping a lot of farm country, what commodities attract certain things. I noticed in all my trapping years that I did it really hard and heavy. Obviously standing corn brought coon beans brought coyotes and foxes because mm -hmm. the beans brought the rodents which in turn brought the canines yep yep and those types of equations but on the grand scale you start looking at these things it's like not just okay a raccoon was here or a coyote was here it forced you to think why right why were they there and also kind of also forced you to recognize there's a reason why it's called trapping and not catching why it's called hunting and not a guaranteed kill right because these animals still have minds of their own. And just like us, sometimes they're going to make a decision based on some internal thing that steers them out of another direction, away from your decoy or away from your scent or your bait. Something something crawled up their butt and said, hey, we're going another way. Right. And there's no way to explain that. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I tell you what, I had a lot of fun trapping when I was a kid with my uncle. I'd run it. I'd run uh, lines with him in the mornings. I can remember when my grandma and I've I've told this story a hundred times. I feel like on this podcast, my uncle went to college, and my grandma uh, he so he set out the traps, and then he had to go back to college, and so my grandma mm -hmm. would check them for him, yep. and then he would go back and reset them. And I can remember my grandma and hip waders running through this farm creek. Um, checking muskrat traps and if there you know there was times where they were still alive I was the I was the ball bat carrier so I was like yep. okay okay Daniel you know whap them give them a good whap and I would <laughs> you look at that now a little kid beating an animal to death <laughs> right you look at that and you're like that's pretty gruesome the way I just described it but back then man I didn't I didn't think anything of it and I'm not a serial you know killer right now so I don't know, maybe no, that... but it also taught you kind of a point, uh, a greater point that's hard to understand at five, six, seven years old is yeah. that, all right, if you're going to do something with a consequence, you need to do it efficiently and mercifully. Yes. Yep. yep. So whether you're five or six or whether you're 25, if you're going to hunt, you're going to trap, you're going to do something, you're going to take a life, try and do it as quickly, as efficiently as possible, but also understand there is going to be the time where that drowning set with that number one long spring on the muskrat hut didn't drown that muskrat. And it's just yeah. swimming in circles. Yep. We're going to have that gut shot deer that you're not going to find. Yeah. Um, you got to eat those once in a while. Let me ask you a question that just kind of popped into my head as hunters, right? I mean, there's no, no joke about what happened to mine last year. Uh, I shot a walking, a, a deer that didn't stop. Uh, I hit him back hit him in liver and guts, he went, and it took him a long time to die. Not what you want. Do you feel that hunters, like, I, I, I am, I feel compassion for these animals. I love these animals. Um, 
but there's a part of me that almost has to black out when I kill, I black that out when I have to cut, try and kill one because like, I don't know what it is. Like I, I feel very strongly about these animals or otherwise I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. However, there's a part of me that is, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, I don't have the, the, the feeling of that animal dying. Like if I, if I had this uh, massive breakdown, like uh, uh, let's say some people, how they care about dogs, right? Mm -hmm. If I had that, that breakdown, like, Oh my God, I just killed an animal. It sucks. You know, Oh God, agree. You know, like sorrow and things like that. And I, I, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. Maybe you can help me express this, but there, there comes a time when, when as a hunter you have to be able to shut that off and know that right. you're going to hurt an animal really bad and if you don't do it right it could potentially suffer and be in a lot of pain for a long time right the human animal bond relationship dynamic however mm-hmm. you want to however you want to look at it for you or for me because i have the same thing yeah. we had to put down my parents dog just a couple weeks ago it was devastating. Mm-hmm. The dog was awesome. Yeah. But every deer that I've successfully killed, I did not cry about it. Yeah. Do, do I want a clean kill, a merciful kill? Absolutely. Right. But I think for some folks, and this goes too with livestock, because we wait, we raised white-faced Herefords for a while. And if you're not careful, livestock can become pets. Right. You can right. become a sanctuary farm, which... <laughs> I don't believe in that purpose, <laughs> right? Uh, personally, right? So you have to. Some people have the natural ability to say, "Hey, this relationship is a direct A to B relationship. I am the predator. I'm going to consume this animal, mm-hmm. and as much of it as possible, with as much respect as possible. But I'm not shedding tears about it. Yeah, yeah. Other folks, it's different. My brother is different. He mm-hmm. will." We used to hunt together as kids. He won't hunt anymore. He can't do it. And I I don't argue with him about it. I get it because there are some things I can't do and I just won't. Right. Just like he will. Right. Um, but you're right. You got to black it out and just understand this is the end result. This is what I'm doing it for. Yeah. And I think and there's plenty of them to go around. Right. And I think a lot of that had to do... Uh, Two, two things, and this, the second one's going to sound crazy, but the first one is being raised on a farm, uh, like, or within that, I, you know, like my parents, my, my dad had a, uh, kind of a desk job ish. My mom, when I was working at, uh, or when I was getting dropped off at my grandparents who had cattle and they had hogs and they had, uh, you know, row crops and things like that. My mom was, a a dental assistant. So my parents were removed from that, but I was still kind of raised on that farm per se. So you got to see death happen. And I think at a, the more, the, the earlier on you are exposed to death at a, at a young age, it allows you to understand it better, especially if you have an adult teaching you about it. Like, yeah, because I I can remember there was a, a pig named, Oh man, I forget what we named him. Like Gilbert. probably not Porky. No, it was like Gilbert or something like that oh, on my yeah. grandpa's farm. Oh, yeah. And I would feed him, I'd feed him handfuls of corn. He'd come up to me, and then one day we took him to the 
the slaughterhouse. You know, my uncle and my grandpa put him in a trailer, took him away, and I never saw that pig again. <laughs> so I, so you know, I was sad about it. But then you know, you learn, hey, you know, we're gonna eat this animal, and so cat, you know, seeing cattle die, seeing you know, uh, like just living that farm life, I think helped me be okay with that. Second. And this is the weird part. This is how I think. And this is where, like, obviously I want a clean kill, but you look at every other predator in the animal kingdom, lion, Mm -hmm. you know, some of the most efficient killers like a lion or a, a mountain lion or a bobcat or, you know, things like that. Those animals have no mercy. They, they, they do it. They obviously do it for, for survival. And I think Mm -hmm. that watching National Geographic's with my dad and, and listening, you know, seeing how it was about survival, I tried to implement that thought process into my hunting style. And, and so it's like, Hey, here's an opportunity. You take it because an animal like a bobcat or a mountain lion doesn't go, well, he's not broadside. You know, I, 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 I'm not going to take it. Right. Can't take, can't, can't go on this stock because you know, he's, he's a th- only a three-year-old, <laughs> you know? So, right. so I've taken a little bit of that. I guess you want, some guys would call it a killer mentality into how I hunt. And I feel like now I have a good crossover of having um, love and passion for this animal, but also when it comes time to pull a trigger or send an arrow, like on a mm-hmm. you know turkey or deer or whatever, then I I can disconnect from the emotion and go into the logic of why I'm doing what I'm doing. Right. So, I grew up on ESPN Outdoors with Tom Miranda, Chuck Daly, Jimmy Houston, yep. and then uh, Marty Stauffer had the Wild America series. I think it was on PBS for years in the late 80s, early 90s, but it was the same thing. Hey, we're in the Yosemite Park and we're watching grizzly bears. Hey, grizzly bear sees an elk calf. Mm-hmm. They don't care how old it is. They don't care how young it is. They don't care if you have a permit for it or not. They know they got a sprint eye hibernation and they're hungry mm-hmm. and they got to eat. Right. Yeah. And they're hamstringing them. They're breaking necks. Yeah. Um, Na- I guess nature if is I was brutal. Prey and I got a choice into which way I was going to go. Having the lights out without even me seeing it coming in my natural habitat or being hamstrung by a wolf <laughs> trying to pull me down. I don't. Getting eaten I mean, by your butthole first. <laughs> right. That hey, would... hey, crows, take out my eyeballs while I'm still breathing. Um, That's gruesome, man. It, it's gruesome, but it's oh, true. That's yeah, the it's natural true. world, and most people don't don't want to recognize that. Right. Hey, right. You could choose th- this way to go if you want. Yep. Yep. We are, we are literally the most efficient killers uh, when it comes to hunting prey. You know, we're not choking it. We're not wounding it and let it bleed, bleed out for the most part. Right. We're our, our, our goal is to end it as quickly as possible. So, right. Um, yeah, man, dude, nature. I, that's one thing that I always think about is, is nature and evolution and, and how there's no, like nature is the ultimate 
example of, I don't know, logic versus emotion, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, why does a mother grizzly bear get so angry and so vicious to, to protect its young so it can, so its bloodline can continue. So their bloodlines can continue and things like that. It's not like, Oh my God, how does this, how does this deer feel? You know, how, how, how does, you know, you know, I, I hope it, I hope they're okay. You know, like that, that kind of that, there's nothing like that in nature. And I, that's why I love watching those animal documentaries and, and being able to see that, that stuff, there you go, that stuff firsthand. And I get to see it firsthand in, in nature too, when I'm out, when I'm out in a tree stand. So, um, I want to get into one last thing here. And I know we've kind of been all over the place just having a good good old-fashioned BS session today. But I want to talk a little bit about your aha moment, all right? And you mentioned this before we started recording about topics that you wouldn't mind discussing. Talk to me a little bit about your deer hunting strategy aha moment and what that was like for you. The first deer hunting aha moment i really truly had i'll admit it came with the first kill okay and i was in my mid-20s i mean i hunted throughout my younger life with the crossbow would join up with my dad and his friends during the deer gun season but i myself did not cleanly take down a deer until my mid-20s and i had to backtrack it and it was a big deal for me because it was two weeks after my grandpa died and i just shot this deer with his remington 870 from the 1950s okay because ohio was still a gun uh slug gun state at the time and that aha moment came to me because here was a single doe coming across another hillside crossing this little tributary and it was this weird moment of i felt like this deer was just on a beam coming straight toward me it wasn't being interfered with anything i didn't have to guess and like you said i had this kind of blackout moment of it's just me and the deer. Mm-hmm. I know the one thing I have to do as long as the deer is in range. And that moment brought a level of clarity of location and wind because where I was sitting at that time was on just like a little knob full of hemlocks. And at that time of day, it was uh, 9, 30, 10 o'clock. So most of the morning thermals have already moved out. The afternoon ones haven't kicked in yet. And it showed me the importance of wind because there really wasn't any, which was a big deal when you get into that kind of real rough terrain with Mm -hmm. the steep hillsides. If you don't have a day with wind, that to me works to my favor because then I don't have one less obstacle to contend with. So the element of wind was in that moment there. That was a huge aha for me is keep the wind at minimal and you'll have a better chance of success. Then the next aha moment came when I got a climber because then I could see significantly more deer behavior and more deer activity by being elevated and keeping my scent pattern out of their range as much as possible. So those were two moments that really just struck me. Yeah. In the last couple of years, I've incorporated more just basic still hunting in addition to the climber the still hunting more so for the gun season because that's when I tend to typically do most of the hunt now. Right. But the still hunt, um, 
it's something that's not often talked about anymore, but uh, the bigger hunters out east, like Hal Blood, I know Mark Kenyon's done a lot of discussions with him and had some series with Hal Blood on tracking big woods bucks and things of that nature. Yeah. But just the element of moving along slow, keeping your silhouette out of the picture as much as possible. The last few years, I've had a lot of success still hunting just by keeping the wind in the face and keeping the eyes open and moving slow. And I've been kind of amazed at just how much more I see yeah. and how much more I can digest and react. Yeah. I, I, I myself had a bit of an aha moment. It wasn't like a light switch moment, but it, it, it did happen over the last, I'm going to say two, maybe three seasons. And so I thought I knew, you know, I thought I kind of got it, right? I thought I kind of got it. But my aha moment, I, I had an aha moment in 2016-ish time frame when things started to really click for me as far as strategy, how deer move. But one thing that I, from my point of view and my experience, you mentioned wind, I feel like wind is only important. I shouldn't say only. Most of the time, in my experience, wind is only important when they're betting and when they are um, at a destination food source. Okay. In between there, yeah, they're going to, they're going to take, you know, they're going to put themselves in position to have a, a good idea. But it, it's truly the terrain in, what I've seen that dictates how these deer move from bedding to food and, mm -hmm. and that sometimes they'll have wind to their back. Sometimes they'll have wind head on. Sometimes it'll be quartering. Sometimes they'll be on the leeward side of a, a, a ridge. Sometimes they'll be on the, the wayward side. There's something that they do that is unexplainable. But they're doing it for a reason. I just, I, I, I can't explain it right, right now. You know what I mean? Everybody can say, oh, here's how a deer uses its nose uh, with wind, as far as wind is concerned. But they don't always do that. They don't right. ever, I can remember watching a big buck stand out of his bed. I was in there perfect, man. I had this, I had the tree stand already hung. The wind was blowing over the ridge. There, the food standing corn was behind me, and this buck stood out of his bed. I, I had a good idea he was there, and I'm like, game over, game over. I mean, he's going to use the wind. He's going to come right to me. What this deer do? He stood up, and he walked with the wind straight away. And I'm like, that goes against absolutely everything that I had read, everything that I you know, had been told up to that point. And so I was just like, they're not always doing, they're not always doing the same thing all the time. And so there is an, like, which kind of leads me to this aspect of luck. There's always an aspect of, yep. Hey, you just got to get lucky sometimes, or yes, you can put in the strategy. You can know where they're at. You can know where the food source is at, but they're not always going to take that. And sometimes luck has to play a little bit in your hand. The rule book for hunting really is not a rule book because just like you said nothing is guaranteed they will they all have their individual minds or corks or just something says hey i'm gonna walk with the wind on this scenario i hear a doe bleating over there i'm gonna go check her out even though i should walk with the wind because this book said i'm supposed to right right they they give zero f's about that you talk about luck two years ago i was in a climber 
I got up a half hour later than I wanted to. I was already pissed off about that. My headlamp, uh, the battery burned out. I didn't have the spare. So I was pissed off about walking through the dark through this grapevine choke trail, you know, in the early morning hours. And then climbing up in my harness and making sure that's secure in the dark. When I'd crossed the creek to get up there, the boots started leaking. So I'm sloshing around and it's freaking freezing yeah. after Thanksgiving. So I get up there, I'm sweating bullets, I'm pissed off because I'm late. I get up 25 feet and I sit there. I don't have my jacket on. I'm sweating bullets. I'm a big guy and I sweat like a wildebeest until it's like 10 below zero. <laughs> so I'm up there, jacket's still hanging, hat's not on the head, ammo clip's not even loaded yet. And I turn to my right and literally 40 yards away, there was a very mature doe just looking at me. Like what it who who is this Sasquatch in the tree? And why is he making such a racket? Yeah. Pop the clip, load around, take off the lens cap. She still hasn't moved. Okay. <laughs> Two steps, broadside. Okay, here it is. Yeah. Bam. She's down. Seven oh nine in the morning. I called my wife, said, Hey, uh, got one. She said, Did you kill it last night and leave it there to get it this morning? I said, Thanks. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Ringing endorsement for your husband. Shoot him in the middle, Sometimes find him in the morning. Better to be lucky than good. Right, right. Absolutely. Ab I, well, my 2021 20, buck, uh, I'm going to say, was a little luck. And, like, he was already, when I first saw him, he was already past me. Um, mm. So I was, I was setting up on this uh, terrain feature. Uh, I would say the end of a ridge where the deer would come and they'd loop up to go up the ridge uh, into the food source. And so I had, uh, how do I say, I, I saw him as he was already past my stand going towards the destination. That, that was the flow of the deer. But luckily, I, I, he, I caught him on a pissed off, you know, he was pissed off and raking trees and I snort wheezed him and he came right to me. And uh, so I, I feel like that's where that that's kind of a lucky move right there. Because you could snort wheeze on another buck and they might run away. Oh, yeah, I did. I've done that before where I've snort wheezed right. at a at a buck. Maybe his body language was off. Maybe he, you know, doing the same exact thing. And he's like, uh, uh, I'm out. So I did a fawn bleat several years ago. And I was just totally shocked. I didn't even pull a trigger because I had a full family group of does come rushing in. There was probably eight or nine of them. Oh, really? That respond to a fawn bleed. It scared the shit out of me because <laughs> I did not expect a response. I'm used to calling and getting nothing. Right, right, right. Well, Ty, man, I really appreciate the good conversation today. Thank you very much for your time. Um, and good luck these upcoming seasons. Hopefully you get yourself out, you get your family out, and you get to hunt uh, always just a little bit more than you expected to. And uh, so good luck, man. Well, thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me. Good luck to you. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode in the books. Huge shout out to Tethered. Huge shout out to Wasp. Huge shout out to Vortex. Huge shout out to Hunt Stand. And now huge shout out to Woodman's Pal. 
Uh, go check all the brands out. You know, go and support the companies that support this podcast. And last but not least, huge shout out to Ty. Huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day. And we got to send those good vibes out. So send the good vibes out. The good vibes come back, right? That that the positive energy snowballs. And dude, dude, check this out. I'm getting cell cam pics of velvet. It's May. I'm getting cell cam pics of nubs, and I'm starting to get a nub, if you feel me. So so, uh, good vibes in, good vibes out, and we'll talk to you next time.